Hello. Thanks for listening to this Dharma podcast. I hope you consider that in accordance with the Buddhist tradition, all of my work as a teacher is offered without charge and supported entirely by donations only. If you'd like to support this work, you'll find a PayPal button on dharmapunksnyc.com. On our website, you'll find resources and a free sample from my wisdom publications book, Unsubscribe, which is available at bookstores and online retail outlets. Thanks for listening. Disturbing thoughts can be, of course, very frightening when they occur, largely because we have a tendency to believe that the repetitiveness and the felt insistence and force behind them, how upfront in the mind they can feel and how uh, ongoing and uh, like clockwork, how much they can bombard us creates the belief we might act out on them. We might be compelled to act upon the images or the ideas conveyed. So there's this sense that I might somehow be uh, pushed by the repetitive thought into some kind of transgressive behavior that will bring harm to myself or others. And they can consist of a lot of content, or they can consist of content that um, can be very disturbing. Uh, Doubts about one's value, one's prospect for finding love and security, one's sense of sanity, one's sexual orientation, one's uh, harmful visuals. People can have all kinds of suicidal ideations and uh, other kinds of really disturbing thoughts. The most important, uh, one of the most important takeaways from tonight's talk is that uh, simply because a thought repeats itself actually does not mean uh, that we are necessarily in any imminent danger of acting upon them. It's actually very often quite the opposite. Even though it feels like the thought continually coming up, like I'm going to lose my mind, I'm going to lose my mind, seems like that means it could actually happen. Or uh, I don't know. I'm going to fail. I'm going to sabotage this opportunity. I'm going to let everyone I know down all over and over again. Makes it seem either true or that we will act upon the impulse. Um, It's actually a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of cognition itself. Thoughts are forms of actually neural inhibition, not neural activation. Thoughts were started over the course of evolution as a way to, one, transmit information about one's attachment figures, the people we loved and care about. Uh, It was very difficult to signal uh, non-verbally the status of one's uh, brothers, sisters, mother, and so forth. So those were some of the earliest words that were developed in Proto-Euro-Asian languages were just basically 
nouns about individuals. Um, and the other role of thought actually was to develop a way to inhibit behaviors so that we could uh, overrule certain impulses that could, while making us feel safer, could on another level endanger our social standing in the tribe. So, for example, if somebody had an actual urge to fight and to attack someone, thought would not be there to actually thought appeared and cognition appeared in the course of natural selection and through uh, behavior as a way to inhibit that urge to fight, not as a way to goad us on to fight. So they're not necessarily red flags. They don't actually uh, indicate that we are in any danger of actually uh, one, acting upon them or them being true. Simply because one has a thought over and over again of being unlovable doesn't mean one is unlovable. Uh, we're generally aware of this when the, the content isn't disturbing. But when the content becomes disturbing for some reason, like actually I know what the reason is, we tend to take the thoughts much more seriously. So if somebody has the thought over and over again when they uh, uh, pass a, uh, they see the reflection in a store window or mirror and they have this thought, I better go to yoga, I'm going to start going to yoga, I'm going to start going to the gym. That doesn't mean they're in any imminent danger of actually going to a gym. <laughs> it simply means that they've the, the thought arises as a way to create a social, uh, is an attempt to create a social message in the brain alerting us to the fact that we believe our status uh, and acceptance from other people might be endangered by the way we appear. But it doesn't actually, in fact, mean we're going to act on it because thought has very little to do with behavior. The, the area of the brain where thought arises is well after behavioral impulses. It's actually something that occurs very late in the, the sort of uh, series of impulses that uh, lead to behavior. It's well after the behavioral impulse. It's something that comes up as a way to just at the last moment stop us from following through, but it doesn't actually create an impulse to act. It acts as a way to stop us. So um, they feel powerful, disturbing thoughts that are intrusive, that repeat themselves, that won't let us off the hook, that wake us up in the middle of the night, that uh, keep us up at night. They feel in, they feel very, very imminent and very much like we might uh, act upon them and they might, or they might be true. They, might they present themselves as that they might convey true information because when we think them, they activate a part of the brain called the amygdala, which is the, essentially the brain's fire alarm, smoke signal, uh, smoke alert, um, smoke alarm, I should say, uh, trigger that creates uh, a release of cortisol, changes the way the heart beats, changes the constriction and tension of muscle tone, uh, skin literally has tingling sensations, the, obviously the breath becomes hypervigilant, 
and there's a state of alert in the mind. So the thought comes with a lot of neural oomph behind it because it's triggering something that's frightening. Visuals can trigger the amygdala just as much as an actual threat in the world can. So frightening, intrusive thoughts conveying disturbing information seem real because they create the exact same body state as an actual threat. But that doesn't mean that they actually, again, convey any... they represent any behavior or, or, or condition that's true. The most uncommon underlying cause of uh, intrusive thoughts clinically are a couple of conditions. One, obviously there's obsessive-compulsive disorder. That's associated with childhood where uh, an infant grows up in a family system where a caregiver is emotionally dysregulated or acting in ways that don't make sense to the infant, and the child develops ritual behaviors to give a sense of control, a sense of power where there is none. And then eventually what happens is if the infant doesn't act on their ritual behaviors like cleaning, counting, turning on and off light switches and so forth, the child has obsessive thoughts which are triggered by the brain, by a part of the brain called the caudate. But um, most of the time, the underlying causes of obsessive intrusive thoughts are an undiagnosed anxiety disorder or the presence of a state of anxiety, or there's also the possibility of what's called core shame, uh, a sense of the uh, feeling of one is imminently about to be exposed or shamed or ridiculed or lose their social status. And so that triggers this this feeling of great vulnerability in the body. Now, from the point we're very, very young, when we have strong emotional states in the body, the first thing we learn as a way to repress our emotions is to rely on cognition, we think. So the child finds its emotions to be terrifying, overwhelming, and so the child learns to fantasize and get lost in thoughts and so starts to rely on resentment rather than feeling anger, self-pity rather than feeling sad, uh, worry rather than feeling fear. And obsessive, intrusive thoughts are almost invariably a form of worrying that's been uh, essentially uh, supercharged by the amygdala. But simply because we worry about something doesn't mean it's true. Many of us have worried about constantly losing our jobs or uh, all kinds of catastrophic events that never happen. And many of us uh, worry all the time about making a fool of ourselves and nothing happens. It's simply the triggering that makes it seem real. And so the key to understand is that if we really want to lastingly remove uh, repetitive intrusive thoughts, we have to work with the underlying emotional uh, 
states beneath those intrusive, repetitive thoughts. The Buddha had a term for them called papancha. Papancha literally means proliferation of thought. And uh, in the early Buddhist teachings, the Buddha said that uh, the underlying core was a felt sense of insecurity, isolation, uh, where one feels alone and unique and different. And the more we feel alone, unique, different, uh, in this kind of dualistic, it's me against the world, nobody's going to take care of me, I'm profoundly unlike anyone else, nobody understands how I feel. The more we engage with this kind of belief, which are largely emotional, the greater to the degree we set ourselves up for papancha. I think there's a lot of wisdom to that. He also says that papancha and this self the other isolated self unique isolation starts off early on in childhood development at a stage called nama rupa, which is before we have language, before we even have full states of consciousness in our early caregiving environments. The degree that a caregiver and people around us make us feel safe is the degree we will have less likelihood to intrusive thoughts. Um, one thing is for sure, uh, because repetitive, intrusive, disturbing thoughts seem so real, so imminent, we tend to fight them. We tend to try to reason with them, tell ourselves why they're not true, or we tend to try to push them out of our mind by sheer force of will. We try to uh, struggle against them. And therein lies probably the single greatest reason why thoughts become uh, repetitive. The work of Dan Wegner at Harvard, one of my favorite psychologists, presented a very now widely accepted theory called the ironic process. And basically, it's very simple to explain, he showed that when we try to stop a thought, when we try to fight against a thought, when we try to put a thought out of our mind, that very attempt is what makes the thought so sticky and repetitive. Because when we set up a... Uh, uh, when we attempt to remove a thought, consciously we're now thinking about something else, but unconsciously we've now set up a system where the right hemisphere circuits are looking and checking regularly if that thought is present. And that process of checking, oh, am I thinking about how much I suck or how bold I am or whatever it is, if I check on that, that very process triggers the thought again. So it's the process of trying to not think that creates the exact same thought we're trying not to think. So he wrote about this in a book called White Bears, which is a masterpiece. And he, the basic study that, where he proved this was a, the study where, of course, he asked people not to think about polar bears. And he would have a, a uh, buzzer. And every time they thought about polar bears, they would hit the buzzer. And so, of course, people who were told not to think about polar bears kept hitting the damn button over and over again because they were 
triggering that ironic process. Um, so it's important to note that don't fight a thought ever. Don't try to reason. Don't try to push it away. And then don't try to uh, in any way try to use logic with it. All those circuits are far too late in the neural process to remove the triggering. Another thing that, another process that doesn't work besides trying to fight thoughts is um, seeking reassurance that they won't come true. A lot of people when they have a negative disturbing thought about oneself or one's prospect for security. I think they're going to fire me. I think they're going to fire me. Are they going to fire me? Are you going to fire me? Are you going to, I'm sure you're going to fire me. Seek reassurance. And what happens is that the reassurance only produces a very, very brief respite from the triggering of the thought. But the underlying emotional feelings of vulnerability or core shame that's triggering the repetitive thought are in no way addressed or alleviated. And therefore, uh, soon enough, the underlying vulnerability starts triggering once again the thought, and once again we're back fighting this repetitive uh, process. So what does work? I guess you're probably wondering that by now. Um, and there's two wonderful suttas in the canon where the Buddha goes over a list of ways to address repetitive thoughts. And I'm going to be using a lot of tools from that that have been now clinically shown to be true. And not only the work of Wagner, but Pennebaker, Haight, and others. Um, so one sutta was called the removal of intrusive thoughts, pretty helpful name, uh, the Vitaka Santana, and that's a very famous sutta. The other is the Sabasava, which is the sutta on, on obsessions. And um, the first fundamental in each is that we have to cultivate a new way to relate to repetitive, intrusive, disturbing, frightening thoughts. The very fundamental message of Buddhist mindfulness that's found throughout is do not first try to push them away. The Buddha had that realization some 2,500 years ago. He was, he very quickly, obviously, as a meditator, realized that the attempt to remove a feeling of doubt, and he certainly had his, and his, the suttas that detail his enlightenment. There's all these asides about how much self-doubt he had, and in fact, how long that lasted. It actually lasted to the very moment of his enlightenment. He was plagued with self-doubt and this feeling that his enlightenment was not real, that his wisdom was not that profound, that it wasn't going to be transformative. So uh, he was well acquainted. But one thing that's clear is that he never tried to fight the thoughts directly. Um, so that's the first rule. Recognize, welcome, and 
many suttas, the Buddha, and in Vipassana, the Buddha, and core Buddhist theory is to, instead of fighting a thought, label it. When you label a thought, you actually do something very interesting. You have to essentially push the thought slightly back in the, the Broca Wernicke's region of the brain and use some other part of thinking to label it. So you're actually, while you're labeling something, you're actually distancing yourself from the thought. To label anything, you have to take a sort of um, a, a disidentification step back from it. And that's really helpful. Um, in the work of Jeffrey Schwartz, a great neuropsychologist of UCLA who did all this pioneering work with obsessive compulsive disorder, the first rule of his uh, four-part strategy is always to relabel a thought, to label it, so that you don't, instead of going, oh my God, climbing inside of that thought and, you know, I'm going to mess this up, or with some people, after breakups, it can be really repetitive thoughts about the person that they feel rejected, abandoned, or or not connected with, and there's a lot of anger and resentment that will come up and immediately will climb into that story as a way not to feel the underlying anger. So it's important to first label it intrusive thought or resentment or whatever you want to use it. Just come up with a label. Three, write them down then on paper. Penna Baker's research at the University of Texas, he spent his entire career essentially largely uh, documenting how writing out a thought without editing it, ar arguing with it, trying to push it away, just write it out for three to four minutes in all of its disturbing glory. I believe I'll never find love, I'll never be financially sufficient, no... Um, I'll always be the one without the date at the wedding, whatever. <laughs> Just write it out. Don't edit. That in his research, he showed there was significant reduction in pathology by writing out thoughts. It's an extremely valuable and simple tool. It makes it easier then to do the rest of the process. So, oh, there you are. And there you are. I'm not going to fight you. You're allowed. Next, label intrusive thought, next, write out, okay, nothing good is ever going to happen for me, blah, blah, blah. Then, now we get to the real work, uh, the stress tolerance. Thoughts that are repetitive and disturbing and frightening have their, their oomph, their power, their clout, Again, due to the fact they trigger the amygdala and they create a sense of alarm in the body. So our next job is while the thought is present, it's trying to get our attention, is to focus on the areas of the body where the brain's alarm system is triggering that state of, oh my God, I'm having this thought about something really bad. Find the tension in the body and breathe and relax and soften. So you're not fighting the thought. Never fight the thought. Allow the thought to be there. Fight what's going on in the body beneath it. 
fight is the wrong word, actually address what's going on in the body. Soften, breathe into it. So when I have anxious thoughts, the first thing I do, label it anxious thought, write out its most frightening ideas. Then I come in and I find where all of that anxiety that is really the core state beneath it, I find it and I begin to breathe into it and relax it. I soften the shoulders, I relax the breath. So I'm with the disturbing thought or the thought that makes me angry about someone I'm upset with. This week, certain Supreme Court nominee that I detest, every time I see his horrible face, I just, my brain lights up with repetitive, intrusive thoughts, and then I have to go and find the revulsion, literally it's disgust, and I have to find it in my throat and my chest and breathe in and soften, and then, thankfully, that horrific individual is removed from my, my awareness. Um, <laughs> At that point, at this point, now we can begin to use distractors. Uh, one of the wonderful uh, parts of the White Bears book by Wegner is he introduces a uh, a new strategy for individuals who are uh, trying to reduce the cognition of white bears. He says, "Okay, now what you can do is think about red Volkswagen. Don't push away the white bears." Allow yourself to think about them whenever you want, but you're also allowed anytime you want to think about red Volkswagens. And he pulled down a, a, you know, a, I guess a board or some kind of thing that had an image of a red Volkswagen, and people stopped thinking about polar bears. Uh, now the key is don't jump to another triggering thought, and that that seems pretty obvious. But in so much of my counseling work, that's what people do. They're like, oh, I did exactly what you said. I stopped thinking about this person I just broke up with. Oh, great. What were you using as your distracting thought? Oh, well, I started thinking about how I'm not financially solvent. (laughs) So, you know, that's not what we want. Uh, we want to think about something that does not trigger obsessive ideation. So uh, for many, that can be something that's skillful and altruistic because if there's one thing that I know from being alive for 57 years and working with people now for for over 15 years in one-on-one spiritual counseling is that Uh, nobody feels compelled to think over and over again about doing altruistic acts. It's generally a little idea that comes up, maybe I should volunteer. And then that thought goes right back down. It's like, what was that? I just had a weird idea. I don't know what the hell that was. Back to my thinking about why nobody loves me. Um, so, uh, or why nobody's calling me or texting me or liking my post or, you know, whatever. Um, 
tools that Arjun Suchito uses, I kind of like this one, is when a triggering impulse thought uh, appears, insert a mindful delay. So the, if you have this impulse to do something that you feel not very good about, you're trying to stop, but that impulse actually is something that you tend to act out on, uh, insert first a two-minute pause, use a timer, and just feel what's in your body compelling you to do this impulse. Generally, for example, when people come home and they binge eat or eat away the feelings of loneliness, if you can insert two minutes of feeling the loneliness before we try to eat those feelings away, and then the next day insert a three-minute pause and then a four-minute pause, eventually we learn to develop the stress tolerance for whatever is compelling the thought, propelling the thought, and at the same time, we're adding more and more control, more and more choice, and eventually that delay becomes indefinite. It doesn't, we don't actually have to go into the thought that creates shame. Uh, reducing multitasking is very, very important. Studies show that the more we multitask, the more the thalamus loses the ability to effect, efficiently gate. What is gating? Gating is the underlying unconscious process that keeps certain thoughts and uh, memories and uh, other mental content from reaching awareness. And while sometimes gating can be, generally it's really, really helpful that you don't become aware of every single unconscious thought or memory that comes up, believe me. Uh, when we multitask, we actually dilute the efficiency of the brain's unconscious filters. And we make ourselves more and more, in, in essence, uh, liable or, um, uh, I don't know what the word would be, uh, susceptible to uh, emotional thought that we don't want to, that really has nothing to do with the task at hand. Uh, next week I'm going to be talking about addressing some of the underlying deeper causes like addressing core shame, addressing underlying anxiety, uh, so that's a bigger talk. But finally, I will say that the last part of Wagner's work uh, was very much showing how people who meditate on a daily basis, even for as little as 15 to 20 minutes, significantly boost their ability to uh, work with intrusive thoughts and to use all these tools, which are essentially mindfulness-based tools, to alleviate. The less we have any form of internal awareness uh, or ongoing meditation practice, the more difficult it is to get distance from the thought, to pay attention to what's going on in the body, to relax the body, to not climb into the thought, and so forth. So if you're going to do any of these things, I would definitely say one, don't fight the thought, write the thoughts out, practice meditation, and focus on developing distress tolerance. So, that's it.
now we're going to practice all, not all these things, a bunch of these things in our meditation. So we're going to actually learn how to put aside an obsessive thought. Hooray! So, and I should remind you that uh, after this, we will uh, have a few minutes for questions. So, if anybody has any questions, I'll answer. Please, when you leave, uh, put away the cushions and blankets, and please throw ten bucks in the basket if you didn't bring any money. You can. Uh, on the Dharma Punks NYC website, there's a PayPal button. Or on the podcast side, if you ever listen to the podcast. Okay, closing the eyes and finding a really comfortable seated upright position. And let's take a few breaths just to start to settle. Um, See if you can take a nice full in-breath like you're pulling it into your belly. So your belly's expanding like a balloon to this big round belly. Pulling in the breath, like feeling that It's your belly that's pulling in the breath and your belly expands to the utmost and then as you breathe out slowly, just feel the belly slowly, like it's the belly that's in relaxing is expelling the out breath and with this release of the exhalation, the breath, it's releasing also any tension, tightness in the belly this great sense of ease. Now feel your chest expanding, and with the expansion, it's like it's pulling in the breath. It's, it's your chest that's pulling it in, and it's fully expanding the chest, and then as you release the chest, it's that contraction or release that's expelling it through out and with it it's releasing any tension in that area in the body and feel your shoulders somewhat lifting up as you breathe in and it's pulling in the breath and then as it drops releasing any tension releasing the out breath breathing into the eyes feeling the micro muscles And then as you breathe out, imagine that your eyes are settling into the eye sockets, like they're settling into these really comfortable chase lounges where they're going to relax. And your eyes are not going to move around anymore. They're just fully peaceful. They're now just 
chilling. They don't have to follow anything in the world. Our eyes are closed. And when the eyes start to relax, the mind invariably follows. Finding on the in-breath of feelings of ease in the palms of your hands, the left and right, the palms generally feel really comfortable. And then as you breathe out, imagine that ease spreading up both arms like a, a warm wave of awareness moving up the arms into the neck, up into the head. Breathing again into the eyes, and then as you breathe down, imagine this warmth of awareness, internal light from the inside of the body, moving down the body, bringing awareness into the body, all the way down the chest, the belly, the legs, down to the feet and out into the floor. Breathing in, feel the energy moving back up the legs, sit bones, belly, up into the head, and then breathing down, feel, as you breathe out, feel the body relaxing, softening. Lovely. So let's cultivate that state of awareness where we truly come to a complete stop in life. That state of being we fall into when we get to that favorite place we love, the very first day of a vacation. Whether it's on a beach or a country house in a mountain, a hiking trail, a spot by the water, a hammock. When you get to that first day where there's no sense of anything you want to think about, you don't want to plan anything, you don't want to go anywhere, you don't want to carry any of the unresolved business going on back home, you've got nothing to do, and you've got absolutely no one to take care of other than yourself. and you just come to a complete stop in your life. There's no sense of any of the momentum of life is completely left. And the mind is now fully enmeshed and engaged with all the sensations that are actually present. Hearing the sound of the fan, cars from the street, 
horns, my voice. So just set an intention to stay present with the actual sensations that are occurring right now. Get to know the sounds, the feeling of your body breathing. And so long as you can tell the difference between sensations that are real, that are happening right now, versus the imaginary images and visuals that we create in a memory or a fantasy, which are constructed by the mind, And in knowing that difference, every time you find yourself falling or pulled back into a daydream of something created entirely by the mind that's not at all present right here and now, just use your sensory awareness to return to this wonderful, unique, never-to-be-repeated moment in time. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, no one to take care of, fully landing in our life in this moment, And when the mind does get pulled away, it's important to not add any frustration or impatience. Nothing but a sense of joy that you've realized that you're not present. That's part of the spiritual growth, just knowing when we're lost in thought. Reward yourself by returning to all the sensations that are surrounding you, sensations in the body, sounds, lights flickering behind closed eyelids. Reward yourself with a very nice, full, relaxing breath, a smile, or whatever feels good to you. Don't force anything, just... Make your body as rewarding, comfortable, easeful when you return.
So at this point, I'd like you to invite some repetitive or intrusive thought that is a common visitor in your mind, top ten hit in your brain. A song that won't stay off the radio of the mind. For some of us, that might be financial worries or feelings of sadness about some sadness or anger at an attachment figure or a sense of one's value or the way other people think about us. Anything that when it comes up unbidden is disturbing first thing I can promise is that by summoning this thought, it will be far less disturbing. It's when intrusive thoughts are triggered by underlying anxiety or shame that they tend to be far more disturbing, but when we beckon them, they don't tend to trigger the same stress and therefore they have a lot of less power they're actually a far more timid version of themselves when we purposely call them to mind so use any thought that has been pretty challenging in the past and just label it give it any kind of label that will create a sense of detachment you can call it fear, worry visitor, intrusive thought The actual label itself doesn't matter just so long as you label it. Now at this point we would normally write out the thought if it had visited us unbidden. We would write it down without editing it. But we're going to skip that and go right to the stress tolerance. So at this in this practice there might not be as much physical tension beneath the thought, but if it had arisen unbidden, there would have been some real contraction in the body beneath it. So just while the thought is present, without trying to remove it, go down into your belly and just breathe in 
soften your belly. You'll find that over time, the softer your belly is, it'll actually be very difficult to even think of the thought. The more relaxed the body, the less sticky cognitive content. So just going down into the belly, breathing, relaxing, then up into the chest, breathing, relaxing, dropping the shoulders, pulling them gently back to open up the chest. Just really bringing ease to the body, not fighting any thought, just tending to the body. And now, without in any way pushing anything away, just bring to mind an image of something you could do that would be beneficial for yourself or beneficial for someone else. Something you'd like to do. And just visualize it. Think about how you might undertake this project. Visualize yourself actually undertaking this new opportunity. And just associating it with feelings of ease in the body.
And so in a moment I'm going to ring the bowl. And just try to bring with you into the rest of the evening some ongoing awareness of what's going on in the muscle groups in the front of your body where emotions are displayed. The more ongoing mindfulness you have, the easier it is to do this work and detach on an ongoing business basis from repetitive, intrusive thought.